Liam. Okay. Ah, I think I know who that is. Liam now. I think I had uh, coffee with you today. Uh, nice to see you. Uh, wow, Jason, you're a mover and shaker. Okay. got to drive around and get the things done. Sorry about that, Ray. How are yeah. you today? I'm doing great. Uh, great to be with you at the end of what has been a, a busy week of interviews for me. <laughs> it yeah, always... you were telling me. <laughs> It always yeah. happens, like you know, when the book came out, unanswered questions came out in in the 20th anniversary of September 2021. I was, you know, like all of a sudden, all these media wanted to interview me through August and through September, and you know, so I think you're almost the hundredth interview that I've had about this book since it came out, which is quite amazing for me. And, uh, and, and so I'm the 100. We'll just say I'm the 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and and what happens is like after. The, the book got, you know, some press and everything. Then every year there's a little hump. It's like a roller coaster. All of a sudden we're getting close to September 11th again, the anniversary and different people in the media saying, who can we talk to? So <laughs> I get, I get more uh, calls and more interviews in August and September and they drop off in October. And yeah, so it goes. Well, thank you for letting me squeeze one in there. I got early with you because I suspected that would be the case. Uh, you're going to get popular during September 11th week. So thank you for making time for us here in Alberta. I appreciate that. And thank you for connecting us to Piers and uh, Kevin. Those are amazing gentlemen. Yeah, they're they're great. And uh, and uh, I watched both of those interviews. And I, you know, as they mentioned, I got to meet them for, for the first time ever in person at the uh, at the occasion of the world premiere of the doc of the documentary showcasing the thinking of of, of uh, Dr. Uh, Graham McQueen, McMaster yes. University professor who died earlier this year, and the and the documentary piece War 9/11. So I got to meet both Kevin Ryan and Piers Robinson and a few other people who who are on the board of the International Center for 9/11 Justice, which I I've written an I, I wrote an article for them uh, with the conclusion of chapter of my book plus a bit of uh, a bit of a sort of a lead up since people were just reading that one chapter without any kind of the <laughs> the other 24 chapters that precede it so yeah but it's i'll be probably writing for them as a writer from time to time cool now if you don't mind let's pretend nobody knows who you are so let's go ahead and introduce yourself quickly and i'm gonna okay. grab a bottle of water i can hear you so i'm not okay. gonna ignoring you but okay. i'm gonna grab some water uh, but go ahead and introduce yourself okay so i i'm ray mcginnis i was born in vancouver british columbia and uh, I uh, was raised, uh, I lived, lived out here for uh, a good part of my life growing up here, uh, going through school. I went to the University of Toronto after, I, uh, after graduating uh, and I went to, uh, I got an undergraduate degree, uh, you know, studying uh, religious studies, political science, history and English literature. I also got a diploma in Christian education from the Center for Christian Studies, which is now in Winnipeg, but at the time an Anglican United Church of Canada uh, college in, in Toronto when I was there. Uh, I went on to, uh, to be a, a Christian education minister. Uh, I, I mean, I was, you know, Christian education director and, and, and in the United Church of Canada and did a bit of stuff in one Presbyterian congregation. And then I ended up being a staff for the Presbytery, which is a geographical region of, of congregations in the United Church of Canada out in the West Coast. And then I worked for the national office of the United Church of Canada for nine years, coordinating everything from scouting programs to uh, voluntary service programs, uh, coordinating conferences and leadership development, social justice issues, you name it, um, and, and um, spirituality. And so uh, 
after that, and then working at a retreat center in Naramata in the late 90s for four years, I switched into a new direction, went to the Center for Journal Therapy in Denver, took some courses at the Banff School of Fine Arts in poetry, and uh, then for two decades, I pretty well taught uh, writing workshops freelance around the continent, uh, teaching journal writing for uh, people who were recovering from illness and injury at hospitals. I uh, was teaching uh, journal writing for grief support groups, uh, taking people on, uh, on walking uh, trails and stopping to look at the beauty in front of us and writing poems, and also working uh, with people, often seniors, to help them write uh, uh, snapshots of their lives and short journal entries to pass on to their grandchildren. So it was a whole range of things, personal memoir, to poetry and, and journal writing. And uh, so that was pretty much my focus uh, up until the hard stop of the pandemic. Mm. And, then, and then, you know, my, I started getting my, uh, my first pension checks uh, from the government back in November. So, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, and doing, frankly, doing poetry workshops on Zoom is difficult because uh, not every poet is really tech savvy. So suddenly someone who should be muted has a dog barking and, you know, it just becomes unmanageable. I like meeting with people in person, <laughs> you know, no as far problem. as a group. Yeah. 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 Well, tell me how well I've done. Uh, roses are red, violets are blue. It's a nice day. How are you? That's good. You know, one of my favorite poems is the one by Fred Flintstone that Wilma finds that he's forgotten about. He suspects that there's a, uh, some guy trying to, trying to woo Wilma and she reads the poem, you know, um, uh, you're the one who understands with eyes as big as frying pans. And, and she, rem she reminds him that he wrote this awful poem when they were first dating. And then he, the light bulb goes on and he feels... Wilma! Ashamed. Yeah, Wilma, yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, you're bringing back some memories there. It's been a yeah, while yeah. since I've watched him slide down a dinosaur neck and go back, uh, leave work. It's been a while since I've watched Fred... Uh, Right around there. Yeah. 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 No, that's really cool. So you, you have the artistic side, you have the beauty side, you like nature, you like to get out, you like to enjoy the yeah. world. Yeah. Uh, you have an eye for it. A good assessment for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, all of that. And, uh, you know, my dad was a dentist. My mom was a, a stay at home mom. Uh, you know, I also, uh, because my dad was a dentist, I had, uh, uh, I was never, my brother and I were never allowed, we, we got paid a weekly allowance for sweeping the driveway and washing the windows and all kinds mm -hmm. of other chores, but we were not allowed to buy candy like all the other kids could do because dentists aren't allowed to have kids with, with cavities in their teeth. So it's I'd go down, go down and get the week, a weekly record survey and with my allowance by 1.45 RPM. So, uh, so I, uh, you know, I did that for many years and, and I also got the weekly record surveys. So I, I had them from 64 through to 93 and two decades later, you know, I, I thought, you know, I should do something with all this, you know, archival material on the, on the pop charts. And I knew from listening to KJR in Seattle from Vancouver that what was on the radio in the States wasn't always the same as up here in Canada. Uh, and so I, I created a project, uh, VancouverSignatureSounds.com, where I, I have uh, done song reviews of over 1,400 songs that made the top 20 in Vancouver, but didn't do so well, if at all, in the States. And I finished that project this summer, and now I'm beginning to write in my spare time three song reviews a week of songs from other 
radio markets across Canada um, sort of started with the letter A with Antigonish. I'm kind of in the middle right now of Calgary and, and moving, I'll be moving all the way finally to, you know, Winnipeg and Windsor and Yellowknife in, in, in 2028. Anyway, I, I like actually doing that because while I was writing my book, which we'll get into, I was writing about all of this stuff, which at times was uh, emotionally challenging to write about and also heavy, uh, you know, serious nonfiction book writing. And so I would be doing that. And then I'd be writing a, a song review on my, on, my, on my pop music website by the Beach Boys or, or, or Celine Dion or something. So it was, it was actually a really nice uh, shift from time to time to be focusing on that as opposed to just being completely immersed in writing, writing a serious nonfiction book. You are a busy man. So you must enjoy this. It must be a passion behind this. I, yeah, I, I like uh, I like putting you know pen to paper, as it were, and uh, and I like the cre the creativity. Uh, I mean, the with the song reviews. Uh, I mean, I'm just writing song reviews about songs that that did a certain much better uh, in Canada than in the states on a mathematical formula. So I'm not writing about songs that necessarily are my favorites, hmm. but uh, but I I'll I'll find out about the song. And one of them I wrote about recently was a song called uh, an instrumental called the Magnificent seven by al kaiola and from 1960 it was number three in early january of 1961 in calgary and i thought why do i know this i was just really young in in 1961 but it turns out that that uh, that that music was used for the marlboro cigarette commercials through the 1960s so anyway so they you know there's it. always something interesting to write about uh, you know in, in each song review yeah you're welcome to write about our theme song all day long if you like. Okay, we haven't yeah. reached any charts yeah. with it though. Who, who, uh, tell, who, who's the who's the recording artist that does? Zahena out of Manitoba. Zahena. Okay. So okay. Zed. So right at the end. Okay, the the very end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No, he's a good artist, and we have lots of good artists in the freedom movement. Uh, Lindsay Butler, uh, Greg Arcade, uh, yeah. Steve Hansen. We got some some good talent. Yeah. Yeah, and if you watch our relay, you'll you'll catch them from time to time. They come on and play some music for us. Yeah. But enough about them. They've already had their moment. Yeah. I want to talk about you, and I want to talk about your book. Yeah. Now, with with the hundredth interview, I, I'm honored. Thank you for yeah. scheduling yeah. me in for the hundredth yeah. interview yeah. on your book. Uh, so you know this well. So you're going to be able to take us through it. Yeah. First, when did you write it? Okay, so so I wrote it. Maybe I should give you the the, the backup. So. Sure. I never intended to write a book about this. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I was on, on September 11th. I was in Joshua Tree National Park or near that park in southeastern California at a retreat setting where people were studying mindfulness and yoga and, you know, and, and, and um, a variety of things like Feldenkrais. So, you know, I was with 60 Americans from about 25 states. I was the one person who was a foreigner. I was from Canada. And we got uh, a phone. One of the, the leaders of the group got a phone call from a friend out in the eastern, eastern seaboard about what was happening in New York and Washington. And I think about the time that they came in, uh, the South Tower had collapsed, the North Tower had not, the Pentagon had, you know, and there was, I, I mean, there, I think they, they said something to us like there are eight, there are eight planes hijacked, which was part of eight. what was in the, on the news that morning. Right. And uh, one, uh, two of the people who were in the room uh, had a, fi a financial officer who, uh, uh, who was uh, managing their, 
their stock portfolio who worked in one of the Twin Towers and they were afraid that he might be dead. He did live, we learned later on. But anyway, I remember that, that, uh, that emotional morning. And, uh, and then it took me five days to get back to America because no planes were flying. I took yeah. a bus across the uh, Washington, uh, British Columbia border. And then I saw um, uh, Lloyd Axworthy was speaking at the Vancouver Public Library uh, mid-September. And he said, well, you know, as the President Bush has alleged that Osama bin Laden is responsible for this, he thought this is a police and intelligence operation that he recommended that, you know, you know, just go apprehend the guy, put him on trial and see what happens. But of course, then the Afghan war happened, the you know, anthrax attacks happened and, and so on. And, 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 you know, and, and for me, like I'm busy setting up my writing workshop business. I just sort of shifted gears in, in 19, late 1999. I want to also say importantly that uh, I did not hear about the events uh, at the retreat center where I was. There was no television. We just mm -hmm. got to hear it and kind of imagine it. I, I'd been in the Twin Towers in 1981 once and taken up my friends in New Jersey to go to the Windows in the World restaurant. So I knew the elevators up to the 106th floor. And uh, I, I, I also, so I didn't see anything. And then also, I didn't have a television at home. Uh, when the Persian Gulf War happened in 1991, I think, uh, I, I was not uh, happy with the I just didn't want to, the onslaught of the visuals, I thought, you know, I just want to, I, I was uh, frustrated with, with, the, with the news reporting, and so I thought I'd rather just get my news by reading it and, uh, and listening to the radio, that was before the, the internet, but I, you know, so I mostly, you know, so then, so I haven't had a TV since then, and, uh, and so I didn't get to see the images that many people are familiar with about what happened that day, I, I got to see still photos. But I didn't get to see the foot video footage until right. about 2005. So whatever whatever part of my brain was Sorry, saved, let me get that correct. From 2001 to 2005, you didn't see any video of 9/11. I well, I no, I didn't I didn't see I didn't ever watch the towers collapsing or the planes going into the buildings till about 2005. Wow. I just I just read. I read. And so and I listened to the radio mostly. And I was really busy with my writing workshops and, and trying to make sense of it all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I, I did, of course, there were some times where I would be at a friend's place. I remember when the 9-11 when the commission happened, when it was happening in 2003, 2004, it was really off my radar. It seemed to be really off the radar of the news out here in Vancouver. All I remember was that I was at friends in Seashelt. Uh, uh, up on the Sunshine Coast, north of Vancouver, and they had a TV on, a big TV on, and dinner was about to get ready, and they had, and then Condoleezza Rice was on, on the TV, and she was uh, swearing in and speaking to the 9/11 Commission, and I also saw Richard Clark, the counterterrorism czar, as well. But otherwise, you know, the Commission did a report in the summer of 2004, but I didn't hear about it. So, so fast forward and answered your question. In 2007, I was in an airport bookstore doing another writing workshop tour for about three weeks, and I was finished the book that I was reading. And so I went to this bookstore and looked at what was available, and, and Kristen Breitweiser, whose husband Ron died in the South Tower, had written a book called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow. And so I looked at the back cover and decided to get it. And, and that began 
uh, my journey really toward writing the book I've written because I thought, uh, I remember thinking, how is it that I, who follow, I mean, I was a loyal CBC listener at the time and read the Vancouver Sun and saw the Globe and Mail from time to time. How can I have gone six years without knowing, I knew that there was a 9-11 commission, but without knowing that there were families who lost loved ones that had anything to do with why the 9-11 commission even happened. Mm-hmm. I said, that's, a, that's an interesting story. And and it percolated, and I, I went to the family steer. I mean, she, Kristen Brightweiser is one of the dozen people on the family steering committee, which is like an umbrella group of a, of a whole host of, of different family groups that had formed in the, in the fall and winter of 2001, 2002. Uh, there was other people uh, that I'll mention in a bit, but, but I thought, how, how can I have gone six years without knowing about this? And, and I was really mindful that I was, you know, writing uh, – uh, having writing workshops for a lot of people that, you know, that, that were not like a lot of the people who take my workshops are women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And while they're smart and interested in, in the world around them, they're not the kind of people that tend to be sitting down watching CNN Crossfire on a Sunday. Right. They're not into hardball. They don't like, you know, people arguing. They, they, they wouldn't really enjoy watching a political debate if it gets really nasty. So, uh, so I thought, I thought about that, uh, and I would talk to people. And I went to the Family Steering Committee's website and saw uh, their profiles. Uh, there are many questions that were left unanswered. Went to, uh, especially there was a book r- recommended by them called uh, uh, the the Terror Timeline by a researcher called Paul Thompson, who put together uh, a, a, a timeline going way before 9-11 and, and, and some years later with referencing over 5,000 mainstream news articles. And so I think I probably read about 2,000 or so of those news articles oh, wow. over, over many years. Okay. I, also, I also learned that there was, uh, uh, there was uh, testimony, oral testimony by the first responders who went into the buildings and I ended up uh, reading all 12,000 pages of their 503 testimonies. I think what I did is I chose to read one day at a time for 503 days in a row at one point. Now, even though I was doing all of that you know, research and looking into it, uh, I was expecting, there were, many, there were many books out about September 11th. There are many coffee table books about the heroes, about the day. Uh, there's Kristen Brightweiser's memoir, which is excellent. There's a woman named uh, Jeanette McKinley, who was a resident across from World Trade Center 4, and she wrote uh, a, a diary called Fortunate, a diary of 9-11, which is no longer in print. And, uh, but there were not a lot of, there were not a lot of, there was not much about, uh, about, about the family's efforts to get the 9-11 Commission going or what they did. There's a book by a guy called po- Bob Kemper. He's a reporter from Chicago. He wrote a, wrote a book called... Uh, uh, rumble or, or rubble i think it's rubble it's rubble. about the, the 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 resilience of the families and so on you think he spends about uh a paragraph mentioning oh and by the way they they went to the 9-11 commission you know but not not much there so over the years i thought and i would get into conversations about about more and more of my off message uh you know reading these stories in the news that were clearly not lining up entirely with the official account and I would have conversations with friends at coffee shops and on walks. And, and there'd be, you know, some, 
uh, openness, but also quite a bit of resistance. And I thought, what I'm going to have to do is write a book. So at least the people that I'm trying to uh, show, you know, my thinking can be perhaps a bit more interested in what I have to say. And I thought the way into that is to is to look at the family's questions. Because people would sometimes say, well, there's people in the 9-11 truth movement that have these objections and who are they? And isn't it uh, um, uh, terrible that they're asking these questions, which, is, which must be upsetting for the families? And I thought, okay, well, the way in to, to write a book is to honor the family's questions or a snapshot of some of them. And to also, I wanted to write the book um, in a way that all I, although I had information to describe how the 9-11 Commission came together, what was going on there, and the questions, and sometimes I have to get a little technical, but I wanted to write it so I was introducing the reader to Mary Fetchett, who lost her son Brad, to Monica Gabrielle, who lost her husband Richard, to Sal Sally Reagan-Hard, who lost her probationary fighter, fighter son Christian, and so on, so that people could keep on, the people who really can keep on reading because I'm layering in personal story would stay turning the pages as well as the people who want to, you know, dig into, uh, you know, some, some, some detail about, about the problem with a, with a given question. And so I think that, you know, I was able to keep layering in bits of testimony by the families at the 9-11 commission and so on. And mm -hmm. so I feel that my book is, is more unique in that, in terms of what it presents that way. And also it was my intention uh, not to be like some people who say, you know, here's my, here's my thesis and I'm going to bang away at it for, for two or 300 or more pages and convince you and arm twist you to, to say, this is what, uh, what I think I wanted to, 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 to almost put the reader in the position where they're like a nine 11 commissioner themselves. They're, they're getting, you know, all this layering of information in the final, uh, in the fourth section of my book, I cover, uh, a chapter on the families that are satisfied uh, with the official uh, account, some for pragmatic reasons. Another chapter on the families that that are, are uh, that think that there's a cover up. Another chapter on the families that want a new investigation or want to have a lawsuit. But I wanted to showcase all of those families because they're not all on the same page. Even the dozen people who were part of the family steering committee are not on the same page. And so I. I had to show that. And really what I wanted to do was to write the book so that the reader reads the book and is left with, well, now that you've considered all this, what do you think? Sorry, I lost the last piece of you there. Yeah. So, so what I want, what I wanted to do was to, was to write the book so that I am not telling people what to think, but showing right. them so they can make up their minds, which is, gotcha. you know, because I, I really believe in the educational adventure where, where people uh, get to see different bits of information. And if they can see that I'm uh, saying, well, here's what Carrie Lemack, whose mother died in one of the planes, here's why she uh, was warning people that she thought in the mid-2000s mid that maybe bin Laden was going to kill 4 million more Americans. Here's one person in the family steering committee. And then here's people like Lori Van Auken, whose husband Ken died, and, and Mindy Kleinberg, whose husband Alan died, speaking to uh, Charlotte Dennett, Vermont reporter in 2009, saying the whole 9-11 commission was political theater. It's, it's, it's just part of what happens with, with groups of people. They, they go through the same experience, but they don't all see the same thing or reach the same conclusions.
Right. And that's a good way to do it. You just bring the information and give as much of it as you can to them. And yes, make your own conclusions. And that's a good way to do it because you're not trying to direct a narrative or, or uh, you don't have your own agenda either. So, and, and did you find that that was successful? Did you find that people felt that way about your book? I have, I've had a, I think I've got a pretty good, uh, what, 4.5 rating after 43 yeah. reviews on, on amazon.com. So a little, a little less, I think from like 39 or 40 and on amazon.ca. I don't know why they don't share all the reviews, but anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been well reviewed and good reads and so on. So I think it's, I think, uh, people, people find that what I've written is, is fair and balanced and and offers them uh, you know, a place to identify with different perspectives, whatever they're going into it. Uh, and yeah, some people, as they read it, I mean, everybody has perhaps some thoughts about what they think or what they remember. Uh, and, and unless people have done a deep dive into the family's efforts to have an investigation and, and the monitoring of the 9-11 Commission, a lot of the information will be pretty brand new. Okay, sorry. I got so sort of distracted because it caused a bit of a kerfuffle on Twitter. People thought I said uh, the coos men are free. They're not. Three men in the states are free. I had to correct that quickly. So apologies. So yes, excellent for a four point three uh, review. Now, what was that last part you were saying there about concerned oh, about it, Amazon not showing the things? Oh, just saying. Yeah, there were yeah there were forty three reviews with a four point five rating, and uh, you know there's I think thirty nine reviews on the Amazon.ca. So I don't know why they don't share all the reviews. <laughs> With with the Canada Amazon and the U.S. Amazon, but there's probably some reason. <laughs> are you in the U.K. as well? Did you? Yeah. Are you, are yeah. you self-published, or do you actually have a publisher? Yeah, I, I well, I worked with an author service to get the book published. Yeah. So what's that? They take care so of everything. That, for you? Yeah, they they well they I I got to work with a uh, a copy editor and a proofreader and a typesetter and all of that. So. It's it's kind of a it, I mean it's it's self published but it's self published with a lot of help. <laughs> cool. And did you take a part of your profit for that, or did they pay uh, you? I I I I I'm I curious because I want to do yeah. another book and I did self published yeah. last time. No, I I I, I pay them uh, for uh, for the package that I want for what I want them to do at first, which includes getting the ISBN and so on, mm -hmm. and the and then and then I I I get you know any any sale profits uh, i i get i get i get a little uh, a little royalty check from amazon and from ingram sparks as the distributor in the states so yeah excellent excellent maybe i'll chat with you about that for my next book i'm sure there's gonna be a coots book or alberta yeah. politics or something coming in the future so i'll talk to you about that yeah. Yeah. all right now did you do a book tour when it came out uh no no there was no way to do a tour because it was in the middle of the pandemic and nobody could go anywhere uh people a virtual I mean, tour I, I well, I had a, I had a. Uh, I mean, my tour really was the interviews that I had. I, I did have a, uh, I did have a, a a book talk and question and answer period with a busboys and poets bookstore in Washington D.C. Uh, so, so that was you know that was one uh, you know one one part of my tour. I guess that was the the the, open, the launch. Um, but uh, it was uh, it was a strange time because people were. In British Columbia, people weren't really wanting to go, and because of all the stuff going on with, with uh, the pandemic and, and COVID and all the variants and all the, you know, every every day Bonnie Henry was was telling everybody about the case count, so people were afraid to go into bookstores. 
So, yeah. so there was there was really no bookstore that that could that that wanted to have a book a book launch because they weren't confident that people would come up come out in numbers to to warrant the effort of staff time. Okay, and now are you going to do another book? Uh, oh yeah, I've got I've got I've been well with the with the article I wrote about the Coots Four and articles I wrote beforehand on the uh, the nine uh, the um, Public Order Emergency Commission and the Convoy. I have a, a book now. Uh, the, the working title is Unjustified, and uh, I'm kind of tippy toeing to the point where I may be working with a publisher or maybe having to go more 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 solo self publishing. And hopefully we're going to be full into that this fall because I, I don't want to wait much longer. But but I, I'm glad I've been able to include a chapter near the end about the Coots Four. Of course, everything is changing every day, and there may be some yeah. you know breaking <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> I'll have to tack on at the very end before the book goes to print. But but yes, it's so here I am writing. Uh, you know, before I wrote this book about the 9/11 Commission and the families, I never thought well. What I do after that, I'll be writing about another commission like the POEC in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe I'll write a third book about the Titanic because they said apparently that the, uh, the the sinking of the Titanic was, quote, an act of God. Okay. What about the NCI? <laughs> we just had some results come out of that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get, get caught up on that. But clearly they, they're, uh, they're, not, uh, they're not happy with, uh, with what the government did and is my is my first takeaway from reading the headlines and, and the first paragraph no it's uh it's uh it's a very troubling time what i want to say you know i mean about 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 why why do i did i end up being interested even to write this you know to to start writing about uh, also about uh the protests in ottawa i mean i only have one friend who's a truck driver who's down in portland oregon who comes up to the vancouver folk festival each summer and uh so i don't i don't I, mean, I don't interact with truck drivers uh you know i'm, I'm you know i'm a upper middle class kid dentist son so on uh but thanks again perhaps to my not having a television i wasn't getting all of the scary yeah. uh coverage that people that i mean i would be sitting down like in my bubble I get together with some friend for a coffee or a lunch, and they'd be exploding about how upset they were with the uh, with what they were seeing on the news with Rosemary Barton and everybody else talking about how how uh, you know the white supremacists and the insurrectionists and the hillbillies and so on going to Ottawa and and uh, you know bomb threats in the children's hospital in Ottawa and all of it and more and well. I was just reading things, and I mean, I was reading Rupa Subramania and other people, mm -hmm. and and I was really familiar with a huge disconnect. Now, maybe again, if I if I had a sixty-eight inch t television screen in my living room, maybe I would have been, you know, just as angry as they were about about the truck drivers. So I think I think that uh, my my takeaway, given that I didn't watch the television news during nine eleven and didn't watch the television news during COVID. I would recommend that one of the ways for us to practice detachment and be curious about what the news is telling us is to spend limited amount of time or little time or none at all watching the TV news at night. Because I think that all those images have a powerful impact on it, on us and start to send us in certain emotional directions that we may not be aware of. 
Yeah, we stopped in 2012 when uh, the hype was the end of the world, the Mayan calendar, all that stuff. There was a lot of that going around in 2012. And that's yeah. when I pulled the plug on uh, mainstream media for me. And we actually just disconnected. We just started streaming then and, and yeah. doing YouTube and Rumble. Um, but I'm actually curious. Like, is that a way to save society is get rid of TV? It might be because <laughs> it might be. What was it? Was it John Denver? Who was it that sang some song back in the seventies? Blow up your TV, throw away your paper, move to the country, and build you a home. <laughs> I think I've done that ac accidentally. Yeah, John Denver. Yeah. You probably have the vinyl. I'm sure if you check your collection. Yeah, I think I probably do. But you know, it's it's you know, I think it's the song at the time. Is that my take on it was that it was pretty much a song questioning. The establishment and there was of course a lot of uh moving you know back to the country and getting out of the rat race as it was talked about back in the late 60s and through the 70s and and i think i think that people you know as citizens we make choices uh a, a lot a lot of us want to be responsible we want to be good citizens and so we think okay the way i can be a good citizen is is every night i come home i'm going to turn on the nightly news and watch it for an hour so i can be informed uh and yet um there's you know optimally uh the people who are informing us are are providing us with a with a fairly balanced uh fair and accurate presentation and i think at times in the in the in past decades in you know we had that at one point. better better you know better uh times of that but i think i think of late we've we've lost that somehow uh and uh and so uh, and so then we have to be all the more careful about what we're being told um yeah Bansbridge, what was his first name again brian or Mansbridge, remember him? What was his first name? Oh, Peter Peter Mansbridge. Peter Mansbridge. There we go. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought he was decent, and then yeah. when he retired and, and left, that's kind of when we stopped having some good uh, Canadian-based uh, media. Your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I've been interviewed uh, more recently this year a couple times, three times with uh, Trish Wood in Toronto, and she was a former uh, CBC reporter, got uh, awards for her work in journalism with the Fifth Estate, and. Uh, and as it happened, she worked with Barbara Frum, and and there was a time I remember listening to you know some of the reports coming out, uh, you know qu question. She was involved in questioning Anthony Fauci in terms of the uh, response to the AIDS crisis, why they weren't giving any off, uh, you know, the kind of off off label drugs that were not going to win the pharmaceutical companies so much money, but but help save the lives of people that were. Uh, being uh, diagnosed with AIDS and HIV back then in the in the 80s and early 90s. So, yeah, there was some really crackerjack excellent journalism and Peter Zowski I think was pretty good. So, yeah, so we've 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 lost our way with that and so all the more important for us to to somehow um, develop a discipline to to watch the news with detachment and and say okay, what is the story I'm being told? And uh, and then to see is there anyone else that's saying reporting the story any differently anywhere in the world that I can find. Not that that other angle would be necessarily better. It needs to be scrutinized too. But we, you know, I think Carl Sagan was uh, the astronomer said back in one of his last interviews in the, in the mid 1990s that, that uh, the general public needs to be educated and we need to mm -hmm. be educating ourselves all the time. And, and, and that means today that we need to be reading uh, and listening widely, you know, you know, if, if there's somebody whose point of view you don't like, 
I mean, I remember, you know, like I was not a Rush Limbaugh fan, but I remember sometimes when I'd be renting my car, renting a car in the States, I would occasionally listen to him. I'd often find myself turning it off with 20 minutes or 30. I just didn't agree with him pretty much at all. But I would put myself through the exercise to listen to somebody who I didn't agree with just to see what they were saying, right. to see whether their detractors were right, that they were as awful as they said they were, or mm. if there was some merit and something that they had to say once in a while. And I think it's important. Otherwise, we just end up in little silos and don't, you know, make up, you know, the rush to judgment doesn't serve, serve us in our society. It's not a good practice of, of spiritual discipline or mindfulness, you know, going forward, we have to be able to listen to different points of view. Yeah, Trish Wood, she was one of the uh, question askers at the NCI press conference yeah. yesterday. Yeah, she was on there. Yeah. And she she did a great job. Um, okay. She asked a lot of good stuff. Now, where do you see media going? We're going to get into your book in a second, because I'm yeah, really yeah. enjoying this part of the conversation. So where do you see the media going? Because I don't think we're going to be able to convince people to blow up their TVs and start reading a whole bunch. <laughs> As yeah. much as that sounds like a good solution, no, no, I, I don't no. think it's going to happen. No, I mean, I, I well, I think I what what I see uh, in in the immediate future is that we're going to uh, end up as Canadians, and, and this is replicated in all Western democracies, as having uh, people in in at least two different silos, where where people are following the, the the uh, you know the, the mainstream legacy media, uh, which curates its information and cherry picks it in such a way that often makes the government look good and often is pushing government narratives, and then we're going to have the alternate media that's followed by others, uh, and uh, which often I think of, of late has been far more accurate, uh, showing. <laughs> You know the facts on the ground, the way that uh, Viva Fry and others were doing in mm -hmm. uh, in Ottawa uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, and so uh, and so the problem is now. I mean, I would I would remember sending people uh, little clips of here's here's uh, 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 Ontario police off. Um, Provincial Police Officer Pat Morris, the intelligent unit for the unit for the OPP, testifying at the uh, at the inquiry in Ottawa, and I would send I wouldn't send them the whole like here watch eleven hours of of POEC testimony because I think well you know they they might flail around and try and even find him so so I would send them a clip maybe from you know True North News or something. Well, I would find that, that a friend I might send this to would, would wave it away immediately because they didn't like True North News. They wouldn't read the actual, they wouldn't watch the actual clip of what Patrick Morris said because the, the media group that had decided to, to choose that clip was one that they didn't think was trustworthy, that they called right. far right. So, so we're really at a place where um, it's no longer the case where somebody can say, well, Here's what William Buckley is saying in, in this column, and here's what somebody else, you know, here's what uh, Dalton Camp is saying, or, or you know, whoever. Uh, it's now people are, are 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 curating their their news sources very aggressively and preemptively deciding that anyone. I mean, I think that there's a, I think that there are a fair amount of people who, unless the CBC uh, did a, a surprising newscast tomorrow to say, you know what. 
there was this national citizens inquiry that went on, you know, for a good part of this year earlier. And we, we dropped the ball. We forgot to cover it. And here's what they said, you know, right. unless Rosemary Barton told some of the friends that I know what they dropped the ball on and ignored covering, they wouldn't believe it. And so we're, we're you know, if, if you're lit, it really means that then we're living almost like in a post-factual world where it, there's nothing, there's no common base. And that's dangerous for democracy because then you've got people making up whole stories about uh, all manner of things. And this has happened yep. throughout history. And yeah. No, it's just so, straight up propaganda. Yeah. And uh, we need to counter it. Now, even the alt media here in Canada isn't perfect. Nothing's no. perfect. Nobody's perfect. Um, for example, uh, Rebel has, has still held the line that Diagonal is a real thing. We, oh, we now okay. completely know it's not. Uh, basically, everything else is pretty good. But just like you just said there about CBC, if CBC came out and said, hey, NCI, we uh, made some mistakes. We're going to follow this now. Uh, Rebel, yeah. if they came out and corrected the uh, their reporting on Diagonalon, that would tremendously assist. And it actually would help the coots men uh, because there's some disinformation around all of that that uh, really needs to go away, in my opinion. But look, oh, we I, can't be perfect. Yeah. They can't be yeah. perfect. Well, I agree, and I, my whole sense of of you know having flown to uh, to Ottawa for a week in mid November last year, and listening to uh, Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor, right. the Prime Minister, listening to Janice Charay, the Clerk of the Privy Council, and Natalie Natalie Druan, the Deputy Clerk, and and others that were testifying, Brenda Lucky, and listening to to the uh, the, the the examples they would give. I mean, Natalie Duran talking about how, well, the protesters, we had to declare an emergency act because the protesters were using, using children as a human shield. I mean, no, here, you know, I mean, they, they were playing in bouncy castles. They're playing with giant Lego. They're playing uh, ball hockey. They're, they're, they're sitting in their trucks with their parents eating a, a hot dog or having some chicken noodle soup. I, you know, this kind of con conflating, this catastrophizing that went on in the media and, and among uh, senior government bureaucrats and politicians, uh, inflating and inflammatory alarmist. And it leads to then me to think, okay, there are people in the Canadian Security Service, CSIS and the RCMP, and they're, they're, they're sitting down looking at this diagonal thing. And here's Jeremy McKenzie saying, oh, and by the way, the vice president of our organization with this uh, imaginary uh, nation made up of three Western provinces and 26 states in the United States, which I'm sure the government in the United States, the White House and the Pentagon wouldn't mind at all if 28 states seceded immediately. And yeah, they don't the like game, them right? at all. For sure. No, no, no. Just Alaska go all the way to Florida. They don't have a go, problem with that. Go away. Um, that the vice president of this of this organization is a plastic goat that time travels and has a cocaine addiction yeah i mean you know i mean i i you know i have a i have a i have a pet rabbit from way back you know and if i told you that it was it that i that i was that it was going to become prime minister next year you know i mean most people in a bar wouldn't believe me but apparently apparently the state of of the people involved in intelligence and policing Whenever they see something like this, they take it really seriously. And I find that really concerning because, you know, when hopefully it won't be, but when there is one day, you know, some sort of a real emergency, I don't think that the people in charge are, are up to being able to handle it because That's they're busy. Part, right. 
they're busy catastrophizing and making, um, yeah, they're, they're building a case and that's not what they're supposed to be doing. Have you read the hate gate uh, documents yet? The hate gate documents. Um, well, when you say it like that, then you haven't. No, you no, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've read some articles by the anti-hate network, but this is different. You're, you're talking about oh. something else. Well, anti-hate network makes a huge appearance in the hate gate documents. Okay, okay. Okay, so uh, Jeremy McKenzie got a freedom of information request, several of them uh, fulfilled, 1,100 uh, docu 1 pages of documents, collected it into, uh, uh, there was a Cayman, I always get her name wrong, Cayman Sad, something like that. She She's an investigative reporter and a lawyer who put it all together. Uh, it completely exposed the RCMP. So here's what happened, Ray, in the RCMP. About half of them knew the truth. The other half was pushing the narrative. The half that knew the truth said, "Listen, why are you? Why are we trying to um, uh, push this single source, which was the anti-hate network of Canada, the single source as gospel?" They laid out how anti-hate network was the only place saying this, and then all the media was taking it, and then they were using all the media as the sources as like a circular reference there. Um, but if you go through it, there were people in the RCMP that said, "This is not." Yeah. This is not a danger. There's no terror group here. They don't even live up to the definition of group. And then there's other people who are just pushing it. I'm going to ask you a quick question because you haven't read the document yet. How long do you think the RCMP spent on collecting and reporting on Diagonalon for the uh, prime minister's office? They got a call. They said, give us a report. Um, how much time do you think they gave them? Huh. Well, on remember the one national hand, security on, that this, uh, this is on, on, by the way, I want to preface this. This was on February 14th. So okay. when the EA was being invoked, okay. there was a request to the RCMP to support what they were about to do with the EA. So they asked for a report. How much time do you think they gave them? Um, on the one hand, I'm, 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 I'm inclined to say a day or less because they were just like, just slapping it together. Or on the other hand, I would say, they spent like uh, six months of, of 200 people's staff time and wasting, you know. So it's like it's, it's either really extreme long, uh, you know, wasting all kinds of RCMP officers' time or doing it like in a nanosecond to get something together to say, here, here's this. Your gut's no. correct. 15 minutes documented. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, even the lady was applauded for only taking 15 minutes but doing a great job. 15 minutes. Okay. 15 minutes. Uh, okay. What what I first thought was in my head was an hour. So even, you were pretty even close. Less, even less. You were pretty close. Yeah, they got the request, urgent, we need this or something along those lines, all uppercase. And it was, we need to support this national security thing. And sure enough, 15 minutes later, they had the report, which they basically just copied from uh, Anti-Hate Network. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you something kind of like pulling into into the world of of my, of my book uh, and and um, in 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 chapters five, six, and seven of the 9/11 Commission report, those chapters tell the story, the official story of what the government believes about how the hijackers came together, who they were, how they put together the plot, and how they executed the plot. And those three chapters are woven together by from from the tortured testimony of a number of people in Guantanamo Bay, significantly by one guy called Abu Zubaydah, uh, okay. and uh, he was tortured 83 times waterboarding and more. 
and the CIA, uh, we learned in the mid-2000s, had uh, destroyed 92 uh, tapes of their torture, and 90 of those 92 tapes were their torture of this one man. Oh, my. Now, you've got the official uh, report released in the summer of 2004, and, and the whole story of the, of, the, of the hijacking and everything, and, and Al-Qaeda is all relying mostly on, on the testimony of this guy. And then you have all the people, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, saying this guy was you know, bin Laden's lieutenant. I think George W. Bush says to a number of uh, places and, and in speeches that he was the number two man, sometimes number three, change. Uh, and, and they say he's like, he's worth like 25 other guys in, in Gitmo. And, 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 you know, all these people uh, would be talking about him in 2004, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Now in 2009, all of a sudden, and I don't know if Abu Zubaydah is out of Guantanamo or not. He just may have a lawyer that's or, or that's that. Anyway, there's a there's a, a civil case uh, by Zubaydah against the U.S. government. And in 2009, in September, the uh, U.S. government uh, puts a motion, files a motion. And what they basically say is we never said that Abu Zubaydah had anything to do with Al Qaeda. We never said that he had anything to do with bin Laden or that he knew him. We never said that he knew anything about the plans to attack uh, America on September 11th. We never said that he was involved in the, uh, in, in the embassy bombings or the plot to bomb uh, U.S. embassies in Tanzania or, or Kenya and on and on and on. And so suddenly for the families, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, like you've built this whole case about, about what the official count is and what the story of, of the hijackers is in these three key chapters. And now five years later, another arm of the U.S. government is saying, oh, this guy who relied on that whole story, he had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So which is the true story then? Well, he, he did have nothing to do. And the, and, and the, the CIA, even the interrogators were saying, uh, in, in, in I mean, there's so much stuff that's redacted, but there are... CIA people who said off the record that they knew from the start that he had nothing to do. He's just a guy right. that they picked up in Pakistan and decided, let's let's pick him up and let's blame him for the following. I mean, like I, you know, if I if if I was I, I've never been waterboarded, but I can just imagine if somebody wanted to tell me after waterboarding for even a few minutes, uh, get me to confess that I killed Marilyn Monroe, I'd probably admit to it because. After so much, you know, waterboarding or having so many fingernails taken out of your out of your hands, at some point you're going to probably say anything that your interrogator who's torturing you wants you to confess to. You just made my wife feel really weird. She has a thing about fingernails and nails. <laughs> okay. She yeah. didn't like that part for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. No. So, no. Yeah. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So it's yeah. So so the the way in which a story is told and then can suddenly change. And, but, but even that, I mean, that, that kind of a story that was reported, I mean, it was reported in the news in different places in the USA, but, but it can be reported in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch or picked up in a, in, in, in a, in a paper in, in the Seattle Times, but it doesn't have to, it's not like it becomes a national story like OJ Simpson being chased in his, in his white van. Most people don't even know about that, but the family members that do think, well, well, shouldn't the 9-11 Commission, given, given this, uh, this change of events regarding how the government now regards this guy as having nothing to do with Al-Qaeda at all, 
uh, shouldn't you go back to the drawing board and maybe uh, write up a, a major revision of what of what the 9-11 Commission report is? Well, no. <laughs> they well, double, da double down on it and say, no, this is our report. I think we're going to have the same problem here with the POEC report. Because yeah. even though the diagonal is now not, it's been proven it's not, uh, RCMP emails, evidence, and the Coots men, I'm sure they're going to be free at some point because it wasn't proven that they're part of anything. They should open up the POEC report again because it was based on the Coots situation being real, a real national security concern, and it wasn't. Yeah. But I've talked to Keith Wilson, King's Counsel. Um, he says there's no way to reopen it. There's no mechanism to do it. Now, I think public pressure might change the minds of uh, somebody, maybe, that, that can make that happen. But we're going to have the exact same problem. Even though the material uh, core information that was provided isn't true, and that report is based on it. Yeah. I think we have the same problem here. They're not going to touch it. No, and and in the report itself, it's surprising because I, I read I read much of the report, and and when uh, Justice Paul Rouleau waves away the testimony by Patrick Morris and a number of other Thomas Carrick and others saying there's no violence here, uh, friendly family environment, and so on. Um, uh, no threat uh, to the government, no, 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 all of that. And he waves all of that away and says, no, there was violence and, and, and points to the, the testimony of a, of, of a couple of Ottawa residents who the best that they could point to, one of them said, well, there was phantom honking, like they could still hear the honking right. of horns ringing in their ears. Uh, but the, I mean, the RCMP and the Ottawa police service and others know that, that, the honking of horns is 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 a noise violation, and what you get for honking horns is is a is a ticket and a fine regarding your noise violation. It's not uh, a basis for declaring the Emergencies Act. And Correct. so the the way that Rulo picks and chooses uh, numbers of things all the way through the report is embarrassing, I think. Uh, and and again, it sets up our country as being a country where all that's needed going forward since he's now recommending that the four triggers for uh, invoking emergencies act uh, espionage sabotage actual serious violence uh, foreign interference and um, and a plot to overthrow the government uh, none of which were were, were happening uh, Jody will Jody Thomas had to had to say well in that answer to the question was there serious violence? She said, well well there was continual violence which she points to hawking of horns and and engines running uh, and pollution pollution when well, we've had over a hundred First Nations reserves that in many cases haven't had drinking water for years and years that's pollution mm -hmm. so so it's uh, it's really uh, astonishing how uh, how Justice Rulo now says, well, well, violence can mean um, psychological violence. If I no, feel, he can't redefine yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, that's what he says. And so, so now, if you keep you keep reframing what a, what a word means, and maybe we can do that for the restaurant industry. Maybe they need to save some money on what an entree looks like. Why not serve a, a two ounce chicken or a two ounce uh, steak? You know, we can say, well, that's your entree. You can change the definition of an entree, for example. I'm just, you know, but, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> why not? Well, there's meat and it's no meat in it. They're changing yeah, the words yeah, right there, yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
So. Well, I'm a little frustrated to be reminded about that. He took a lot of liberties, didn't he, when it came to his decisions and what he cherry-picked. Yeah. 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 So maybe there's an unanswered questions book for that, the POEC. Yeah. Well, I, I think I've I think uh, my draft manuscript is certainly going through his uh, his, uh, his 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 report uh, with a fine tooth comb in places. It's just that's uh, yeah. I have a I have a lot of recommendations. I and I, I you know in, in part of in part of my conclusion for the for the draft of that of that book unjustified, and I I really hope that all of the recommendations I have. Uh, won't ever need to be tested because I hope that I never have to live through another government in no, my no. lifetime that invokes another emergencies act. It's just a big mistake. Well, what about recommendations for modifying it like we did last time? So when Trudeau Sr. used the War Measures Act, this yeah. is what led to the EA, the Emergencies Act, because we needed yeah. to fix it. Yeah. Are we going to get another version of the EA, another name for it, to try and clog some of the holes that we discovered in this one? Yeah, it's 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 hard to know. It's hard to know what I mean. I I don't see a liberal government, uh, liberal government or a liberal NDP coalition government doing anything more than simply rubber stamping all of the recommendations from the report. I mean, I you know maybe in two thousand twenty four they'll 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 look at the report and then and then uh, pat themselves on the back for uh, adopting all the recommendations of the report. Uh, but I think that uh, I think that what one of the things that 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 needs to would need to happen is that is that they need to be they need to really like itemize rigorously itemize what would need to happen before like you know since it says last resort for invoking an emergencies act they have to put a whole bunch of additional additional points all the way through so that it's crystal clear that if if the if the police in any in any setting have not chosen to declare uh, a, pro a public protest a riot and haven't declared the riot act, uh, there's no way that any government can declare an emergencies act because the riot act hasn't even been, been declared and and other and other things even before then. So so you know and also the government must demonstrate, as most governments since since the since the since the, the, the whole country began in 1867, most governments have always. Uh, met with whoever the protesters are, to, whether the conversations have been have been productive or not, uh, just to sort of show goodwill. And here's some citizens that are upset about something, and here's what we have to say to them about why we think our our policies are justified, or here's what we think we can find some common ground. But uh, but I think that that there needs to be a demonstration uh, in the future mm -hmm. that a government has, in good faith, engaged with protesters as a first step. And if that, for some reason, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, let's say there was a future protest and, and, uh, and I, by the way, if, there will be, yeah, there will be, there will be. Okay. So the future protest. And now, uh, you know, so, so then, uh, you know, the, the government needs to have ministers or, you know, or deputy ministers speaking with the protesters in question about what whatever it is indigenous whatever whatever the protest is and 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 without without being able to show democratic goodwill toward your own citizens who elect you uh you know like they're we're, we're the people that elect them that that's what that's what needs to happen and there needs to be uh, a real rigorous checklist so that this kind of of um hijacking of the emergencies act uh, doesn't ever happen again. 
Well, there may be a bunch of different ways to do that. One of the things I had in mind was they should go to the OPP and copy the liaison program that they have because they did have a good liaison program with the OPP. Uh, They've been doing it quite some time, a thousand protests a year, I think is what they're used to doing and dealing with. And they've done a good job there. They really should be some liaison on the federal level. That's mandatory that we can speak to. Uh, But I think something that would be far more effective would be uh, true, valid recall statutes. So the people can recall inefficient um, uh, members of the government, all levels, from school board all the way to the PM himself. And I mean true, like we have some recall in uh, Alberta and BC, but it's at 40%. You need yeah. 40%. California does 20%. Yeah. Um, we need we need some real recall legislation here in Canada. Therefore, they're not worried about their, their jobs only every four years. They're worried about their jobs all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I think we need to establish that. Not to threaten the government in any way, shape or form. Because you should only lose your job if it's with cause and there's a reason for it. Um, but that that concern should always be there. It's there for us when we have a job. It's there for us. This is what kind of regulates people, self-regulates them, is the chance of losing your job. Uh, with the government right now, Trudeau too many times, even Doug Ford too many times said, uh, you get to have your say at the election. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not the way it's supposed to work. You should be worried about your job every day. Uh, we don't have that. So I think recall uh, legislation may be a, a solution for a lot of the problems. And if we can't get that, then we need to start looking at things like liaison, forcing the government to identify protesters versus enemies. You don't treat en- uh, protesters like you treat enemies. Uh, EA can't be used against the Canadian public unless they've been deemed an enemy of the state in some way. No, so, well, like we can sit there all day long. Uh, uh, reforming this re- legislation but i think the the core one would be uh recall legislation yeah. to keep them on their toes at all times thoughts yeah oh yeah i think i think it's i think it's i mean we had a recent uh recall effort in uh premier david eby's riding and you know, i think i think i forget what they got maybe they got about 20 somewhere somewhere in in there getting up to 20 percent but of of uh, uh but they had to get so many signatures and they just they did a lot of they did a lot of education, but it's it it takes uh, you have such a, a high threshold, uh, so uh, it's hard it's hard the way it is right now. Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 not real when it's that high forty percent. When it's that high, it's not real. It needs to be twenty percent, and then once you reach that threshold, have the election, let people vote. Um, I really think it's as simple as that. But Alberta, BC, it's forty percent, and if they did anything federal, it would be forty percent. They'd be pushing it to that high level. Um, because the the quick argument is, well, you can get a union together and they can uh, cause a recall. And my counter argument to that is, and let the people vote. <laughs> so yeah. if the people have yeah. an election after that and the election changes a person, what, what's your problem? I don't understand why it matters how we got there. Because yeah. you're still asking the people to have a decision. Um, yeah. And why wouldn't you want it to be that way? A group gets organized, gets enough signatures and causes the uh, recall election. This is exactly what it's for. Now, like we saw in California, sometimes they can force yeah. a recall and they stay. So the election yeah. is to not recall. And that's a properly functioning recall system, if, if you ask me. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think that the general public will uh, support a recall if it's a solid reason. Like if you're complaining because uh, they haven't uh, plant, planted enough red roses in the 
in the uh, in the gardens of your of your municipality, uh, maybe people are, are going to say, you know, that's not really important to me to, to micromanage the the flower beds mm-hmm. of the city. But 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 something like the Emergencies Act and what happened, I think, uh, yes, <laughs> that's that's well, we where could, the rubber hits the road. Yeah. yeah, we could have some thresholds. For example, uh, criminal charge or conviction. Yeah, that's a reason. Um, uh, conflict of interest could be a reason. Like we can maybe specify certain activities, yeah. uh, but I would even say I wouldn't have a problem with the Rose people getting together yeah. and fighting for it. If they get the numbers, that's a democracy. Yeah. Yeah. If they get yeah. the numbers and then eventually the election happens and the recall is supported, I yeah. really don't have a problem with why they started yeah. the recall. Sure. The people still got their say. Yeah. Cause what, what, what's the town you live in? Breton. Breton. So, so maybe, you know, Breton in a few years will be known as the red rose town. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. And uh, maybe I'm the first recall. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I got to get there first, uh, yeah. but we'll see what happens. But I think something along those lines where people's voices are heard more than just once every four years. Uh, I think that's where the fix is across the board and right down to the, the school board. So if you have somebody coming in, they're bringing in some crazy stuff, um, you can do a recall on that person. That's probably the best way to fix a lot of our trust with the government is to have a true way to fire them, uh, simply put. Uh, yeah. I, I don't like the fact that they, they, they have uh, every four years is when we get to do it. Now, it also means we wouldn't need to talk about terms and limits like that because th- the whole point of a recall is to get rid of people who are not functioning well. So you wouldn't need to put in term limits because you want people are doing well and, and they're being supported by the constituents to stay. Yeah. Like that's, that's why I don't support term limits because you, you'll term out good people. Um, I'd rather be able to take out the bad ones, but leave the good ones in. That's really yeah. what we want in a democracy anyways. Um, okay. But enough about Canadian politics. Now yeah, let's get yeah. back into unanswered questions. Can you share with us a couple questions that um, were not answered and maybe share a little bit about, uh, what you learned about that. We don't have to give away your whole book, but sure. uh, maybe touch on a couple of questions that uh, were unanswered. So there are, there are questions about uh, the, uh, like the, you know, why, why were, you know, like the, why were, were planes flown out of America when every other plane was grounded and the people who, who were oh, on right. those planes were, were relatives of, of Osama bin Laden and, and Saudi nationals. Uh, and, and, and nobody, I mean, at a time when people uh, are not able to fly, not even the families of, of the loved ones who, who lost, you know, vic, you know victims in the tax, they can't fly, but these people who are who are relatives of the alleged uh, accused uh, perpetrator of the crimes, they can fly. And now, didn't they fly on the twelfth? Like they flew like the very uh, next they, day. Yeah, the twelfth and the thirteenth. And you right, have. So how did they come up with the suspect that quick that they needed to protect this group so quick? Like how did they know so quick? How do they know who the hijackers were, you mean? Or, or, or yeah, or, so on the eleventh, a bunch of things happened. You started to accuse people. You had some thoughts or maybe who it was but it seems like the government knew these guys would be targeted or they thought they were in danger but they knew really quickly so they flew them out i'm yeah. curious how the, the decision making was so quick well the decision making you have you have um i mean you have uh reports early you know like by about 10 o'clock that morning 10 30 of oh look here's a 
Here's a, uh, a story about the FBI finding out that there were these uh, terrorist uh, sus hijacker suspects that were in this grocery store in Maine or, you know, and, you know, and, and you, you've got all these things suddenly on the one hand, you've got a story that before September 11th, everybody was all thumbs. Nobody had any idea about who, who was doing anything. And they're all kind of like the Keystone cops. And then on the morning of, they're just all putting it together. I mean, there's people who are, I mean, uh, CIA director George Tenet uh, uh, is sitting in the St. Regis Hotel at, uh, at, at 8.50 a.m., four minutes after the North Tower is struck by the plane. He says uh, to uh, his colleague at breakfast, uh, he gets a phone call from Langley headquarters, CIA headquarters, and, uh, and they say the plane's hit, and he announces immediately he's certain, 110% certain, that this is the attack. They've all been that bin Laden has been planning forever mm -hmm. and he's 100% certain that this is the terrorist attack. Well, the families are saying, okay, so the CIA director is 100% certain this is a terrorist attack. Why doesn't he get somebody uh, at the CIA headquarters to phone the Port Authority and tell everybody in those buildings to evacuate immediately? You know, nobody right, did because that. Because they were being told it was an accident. Stay put. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's being dealt with. Yeah. Right. hundred percent correct. Yeah. 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 Like they're going, they're going down people, the people who's or in, remove in, George Bush from the classroom. Like he was yeah. there for 30 minutes. Yeah. The people whose instinct is to get out of their, go down the staircases are being met with, with uh, port authority staff with bullhorns saying, this is America. Uh, you are safe. Go back to your offices, go back to your office desk or you'll be fired. Now the people who, who disobeyed those instructions from Port Authority officials are the ones who lived. The people yep. who obeyed and went back up to the top, uh, to, to whatever floor they were in, are the ones who died. And so, uh, you know, that, and you've got uh, Richard Clark was asked about, well, you know, why do these people get, get, uh, get, get flown out so quickly? Because they didn't even stop to say, well, uh, we're going to fly you back to Saudi Arabia. We're concerned that maybe uh, because of your cousin is is has been um, accused of being responsible for this, that you won't be safe for you to stay. But they didn't even bother to say, would you mind coming into this room and be interviewed for an hour to see if you know anything? Because at the time, there are stories in the news that the Sears Towers may be going to be a target from a plane. The Golden Gate Bridge is going to be blown up. And all, I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, at one point, there was... Uh, Somebody in the 9-11 commission from the military said there was many as like 29 planes, you know, that they thought might be in the air. I mean, so so in the midst of all that chaos, wouldn't it make sense to to just ask some questions, not to accuse people of anything, but just to see if there's something based on the story that we're being told. But right. no, they, they <laughs> off you go. And then and then Richard Clark, the counterterrorism czar, uh, he, he said to the 9-11 commission, well, uh, you know, um, I mean, regarding how this happened with the, with the Saudi uh, re relatives, uh, Bin Laden's relatives going back to Saudi Arabia, he said, "Well, well, you know, um, uh, some somebody discussed it with me, and 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 we decided it was a good good decision, and so we, you know, we signed off with the FBI, and off they went." So there was a reporter uh, sometime later in the Hill uh, newspaper in Washington D.C. that followed up with Richard Clark and said, "Well." Who was it that told you that that this would be a good idea? Name names. He said. <laughs> he said it was himself. He was the person who told himself uh, sorry, that this would what? be a good idea. Sorry, I didn't catch that. He claims he, that he he, told he was himself. the person who told himself. 
I mean, he's saying to the 9-11 commission. Can we at least establish that? <laughs> he's telling the 9-11 commission and all the, all the families there that someone told him. And when someone tells me, someone, if I told you someone told me, you're probably 99% of the chance going to think that I meant somebody else, not myself. No, but this 100% is the kind of time. I would assume you're not talking about you. 100% of the time, right? So, so this is this is the kind of of uh, of slippery way in which in which people in positions of power will will play this game. They will let they'll say words and sentences and paragraphs before uh, people in a in a in a forum like the 9/11 Commission. They will know that what they infer means something that most people will take exactly how they've inferred it, knowing that actually what they're saying is not true. Right. I wish there was a light bulb above everybody when they're being false. I wish we could tell. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was insane. I never heard that one before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you got any more of those? <laughs> well, I like the. I think that the. Like, I mean, there's there's questions about about the uh, you know the the the, Nor the the whole way that NORAD uh, handled you know the Pentagon and NORAD response. You've got General Myers saying, uh, "Well, our our response to the hijacked planes uh, was to not scramble any planes at all, despite all the protocols to do exactly that." And then over time, uh, into 2001 into 2002. The, the Pentagon, Department of Defense, NORAD come out with seven different iterations of how they responded, none of which agree. I mean, it would be like me telling you, well, last night I was watching, uh, you know, uh, a rerun of I Love Lucy. And then a few weeks later, I say, oh, yeah, uh, last night, yeah, that, that um, on the uh, 14th of September, I, I, was, I was at a bowling alley with some friends. And then I tell you, you know, a few months later, oh, that that was the night I was out, out to dinner with my mom at an Italian restaurant on this on Hastings Street. You know, I mean, at some point you might I mean, maybe you'll forget every single time I tell you and you think, oh, that's interesting. But if you stop and think about all the different stories I'm telling you, you might say, hey, wait a minute. Ray told me something different. And, and this is why when the when when all of the testimony of the of the of the general staff before the 9-11 commission and colonels and so on talking to the to them there were numbers of commissioners who were saying you know this just doesn't add up and there was some discussion about asking the department of justice to criminally investigate the department of defense and the pentagon now it didn't happen now part of that is because you've got the co-chairs of the 9-11 commission lee hamilton Who's been involved in chairing the uh, October surprise uh, thing about about uh, holding the um, holding the Iranian ho the American hostages in Iran until the day that Ronald Reagan gets uh, gets his first day and you know make sure that Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, defeated by Reagan. Uh, Lee Hamilton's also the one who's involved in co-chairing the uh, Iran Contra scandal talks about how he looked Oliver North in the eye and said he couldn't believe that Oliver North would ever lie to him. And and so you've got someone like Lee Hamilton who's got this penchant for he all he says to the press, you know, I don't like to go for the jugular. So mm -hmm. he's really playing softball with the White House all through. He he says before the families meet, the families meet with uh, Lee Hamilton and Tom Keene, the co-chair. Uh, before the first public hearings in late March of, of 2003. 
And Lee Hamilton didn't want to have any public hearings at all. He didn't want to have, he didn't think it would be good. He didn't want to have any, um, any subpoena, didn't want to subpoena anybody. Now, I don't know an awful lot about subpoenas, but, but from the family's perspective, if you subpoena somebody who's a, who's a key witness, you can get, uh, that person now has, has protection because they can now say whatever they want to as a witness before the, the public inquiry. But if that person is a witness, just volunteers you know, go, the, themselves without the subpoena protection, then they are at risk of having retribution. They could get a demotion or be fired by somebody higher up because they don't like what that person said. But if, you know, so subpoena power and, and exercising a subpoena is helpful for people that might blow the whistle on, on things that's, that might embarrass uh, certain agencies or, or even point to dereliction of duty. And what, what, what the families learned was that uh, you've got, you've got not, a dozen public hearings over 18 days over the course of the commission from March of 2003 to the early summer of, of 2004. And you also have many more meetings of, of people on some of the nine, with some of the nine staff teams of 9-11 of commission staff meeting with people behind closed doors for security reasons. And in each case, you have uh, many times witnesses from the CIA or the Department of Just Justice or the, uh, the, the uh, FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. A witness is there. Now they have a government minder, somebody who's higher up in their department who is sitting beside them. Perhaps a commissioner asks a question. And, and the witness before they answer is interrupted by the government minder who answers the question for them. For them, yeah. Or they might, or they might be standing behind them with their hand on their shoulder, maybe squeezing it in a certain way, or or tapping their foot next to them to make sure they don't say, you know, don't say anything now. And, and the families, uh, the families uh, uh, wrote, uh, they issued uh, almost fifty uh, press releases during the life of the 9/11 Commission. Uh, often expressing frustration with, with how the commission was going off track. And they talked about how you cannot expect transparency and we can't get to the bottom of what happened if the witnesses feel intimidated. You're 100% correct. Um, so 50 press releases. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I mean, they, they, um, issued, they issued a, a report card in 2003 in September showing that that many of, of the categories of how the commission was uh, proceeding so far uh, was was underperforming. They were giving them D's and C minuses and so on uh, or incomplete. Uh, just this it was just uh, also they found uh, they had problems with the the softball questions. even you know you have sometimes you would have female witnesses and you have a commissioner who has the commissioners only had five minutes each to ask the question of each witness coming forward. And instead of asking a key question uh, that the families had provided the commission to ask, that the commissioners had said to the press, these are great questions, families. Thank you. We're going to use these. Instead, you have someone saying to a female witness, that's a great pantsuit you're wearing. Where'd you get your hair done? I mean, honestly, I mean, <laughs> I mean Lori Van Auken, whose husband, Kenneth, she said, you cannot believe how they would waste their time. And Lee Hamilton talking to, asking questions of, of Mayor Giuliani, saying, well, I'm an old Midwesterner myself, and isn't, it, isn't Illinois and Iowa great? And I mean, you know, I mean, 
you know, I mean, I, I could waste my time talking to you right now about my cousins and in St. Albert and Spruce Grove and Fort Saskatchewan. I'm sure we could have a great yak, but this is not the time for me to go into that right now because we're having an interview. And so, but this is what was happening in real time during during the commission. And, and one of the questions that was asked uh, of Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary, was, did you scramble planes to intercept uh, the plane headed toward the Pentagon? So there's right. a question. So it wasn't ignored because this is what he did. He stopped, looked at the wallpaper, looked at the ceiling fixtures, looked around the room, looked at his water glass, and repeated the question, did I scramble jets to intercept uh, the plane headed toward the Pentagon? And then Tom Keen banged, to banged the gavel and said, time's up, next question. Incredible, incredible. At least somebody asked him the question the second time, right? Him himself. <laughs> yeah, himself. He repeats the question but doesn't yeah. answer it. Wow, that's incredible. And, and we look for that when we're doing interrogation in in the in law. Do we have a witness on the stand? Yeah, they do that for sure, and we look for that. And we know that it's uh, usually an indicator of some guilt or hiding something yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I got a couple more questions about what happened. Maybe you can help me with. Yeah. Um, the only thing that left faster than the bin Laden family out of the United States was the rubble. They moved that thing out of there really quick. The, the pieces of the building went to China or something like that. They went to was China, that, South, South Korea, Philippines. Yeah. yeah. Was that a, one of the questions that they wanted to understand what, what happened to the rubble? Why do you, cause there's a crime scene. Yeah. They removed yeah. all the evidence from the crime scene. That itself is illegal. Um, did they cover that or ask about that? The families did ask about that. Um, they had read uh, a uh, an editorial by Bill Manning, who was the uh, editor for Fire Engineering Magazine, which is like a paper of record that a lot of firefighters in New York City and other boroughs and in in probably New York, New Northern New Jersey would also be reading. And he was talking in his editorial about how uh, all of the protocols for what you're supposed to do with an investigation like this when a building when there's a building collapse are being thrown out the window and they're 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 moving uh, all of all of this you know steel and and, and debris and 99.7% or whatever it is away as fast as they could and he said this is not how 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 an investigation is supposed to happen and this is this is a crime scene and for people like Sally Reaganhard whose son uh, probationary uh, firefighter's son Christian Reaganhard died that day. Uh, you know, they, you know, they, you know, she and Monica Gabrielle, whose husband Richard died, uh, put together this skyscraper safety campaign. They both ended up being on the family steering committee too. But they, they had lots of questions about about the lack of protocols and and how uh, this was this was this looked like a cover up. I mean, there's no way. Uh, you know, to to this the the way that they're that they're acting is going in the 180 degree in the opposite direction of what they're supposed to do if they really want to find you know how did the buildings come down? You get right. rid of the evidence and and sell it sell it to scrap dealers and then nobody can can look at it. Uh, so yeah, so that was that was one of the ones. I mean, I, I you know I think that Sally Reaganhard said that there you know there should be a you know, there should be a, a, an ongoing uh, institute of looking looking at this uh, all the time. I mean, she, she, there was, of course, there's the 9-11 Museum that's there, uh, that, that's, that's there. There's families that uh, like um, Beverly, well, let's see, like Beverly Eckert is, she lost her husband, Sean Rooney, 
And then she was one of the people asking President Obama, you know, to, to have a new investigation in February of 2009. Then she sadly died in a small plane crash the week later. But uh, but she, you know, there is a in the in the museum that I've gone to, I've gone to the museum, the 9/11 Museum. There is a, a beautiful quote of her uh, talking about uh, you know being able to talk to her husband Sean before he died, and it's very moving. You know, and might bring out the Kleenex box to look at it, and it's all it's all part of the story. But what's not part of the story in the museum is that Beverly Eckert was one of the one of the family members who chose not to receive a payout from the government because she wanted to take the the United States government to court Correct, for dereliction right. of duty. That's not a story that you see in that museum. And so there's there's things like that that that. Sometimes I don't even I don't even know what what to what to ask. But one one thing I'll, I'll mention that um, uh, I I ask questions about about the evacuation. Now, when I went to the World Trade Center North North Tower in, two, in 1981, I went to the Windows on the World uh, restaurant, but I never went to the rooftop. I, I'm you know I might have somebody might have said, oh, you can go on the roof, but I didn't know, didn't think about it, and didn't think about it for many years. Uh, there's a question the families ask about uh, why were the rooftop doors locked and why was there not, uh, you know, evacuation from, you know, with helicopters. The same helicopter detachment of the Brooklyn uh, police was ready and willing to take uh, people away on the rooftops for the certified heli spot that they have to go through regulations with the city of New York to get a certified heli spot on both rooftops of those towers. Uh, they, they, they took people away, uh, 56 or so away in 1993 after the truck bomb on the, on the North tower. Right. So, so you have port authority officials saying, well, we, we, the, the rooftop doors were locked because we didn't want people committing suicide. Now, I know that Patty. Sorry, pre-September 11th. That's the reason why it was locked, or no, on no, September. No, on September 11th. I'm going to give you the, the whole story in a minute. But it's like on okay. September 11th, they're they're they mean they're saying you know a day or two later. Well, the reason why we didn't have the rooftop doors were locked for people, uh, you know, on the top floors of the North Tower and the South Tower was because uh, we didn't want people to commit suicide. Now, now Patty Casas has just talked to her husband John. Her husband, John, is explaining, you know, before he died in the North Tower, that there are colleagues of his that, who all remember when the North Tower had the truck bomb in the basement. And, and they're so they went that, up. Yeah, so they went up. And so they're mm -hmm. trying to do the same thing because, mm -hmm. believe me, Patty was certain that her husband, if he'd been able to live, all he wanted to do was get home and see her and give her a big hug. Yeah. So... But here's the story about, well, you know, we're worried about these people being suicidal. So we made sure the doors were locked. And then they come up with this other thing as well. We thought that they might, you know, if we had, had, had the doors unlocked, that they would have gotten up onto the rooftop and started vandalizing uh, expensive broadcasting equipment. Oh, come on. You know, so, so picture this. You have just left the 104th floor of your office. You've gotten into the rooftop. You've gotten through the door that's not locked. You see the, the waiting helicopter for you to take you down to ground level. And you say to yourself, no, I'm going to go over and, and, and kick the shit out of, sorry, pardon my French, but, you know, kick, you know, kick and, and, and damage some, some broadcasting equipment instead of being taken to safety. I mean, it makes no sense at all. 
and then they were also saying, oh, the oh the the people would have tried to do daredevil stunts, like I don't know, walk on on the about? on the rail on the railing of 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 uh, you know. And the thing is that here here's what makes it even more crazy. I didn't know this because I you know I didn't dig into this because I didn't think to. But thankfully, uh, there was a, an exhibit. I think it's in 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 one of the towns. I think in the Netherlands. I forget which one. Uh, maybe Amsterdam, but there was an exhibit around 2016-17, and it was an exhibit about the World Trade Center as as they was as it was before the collapse. And as it happens, the uh, the the guy who was putting it together uh, got lots and lots of photos from people who had gone up to the rooftops of these buildings, especially the South Tower, because lo and behold from April of 1973 until the evening of September 10th, the People general public there. was able to go on an elevator by the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, especially in the summertime, pay their $13 US and walk, walk around the rooftop. And you can bet that this was a, a revenue stream for the World Trade Center and the Port Authority. Sure. And at no point did they require tourists to fill out a mental health form to make sure that they wouldn't commit suicide when they got up on the top of the rooftop. So it, it, it's insulting for the families who, who believe that their loved ones who were, who were above the, the plane impacts, you know, would, would have committed suicide knowing what those who were able to speak to their loved ones said before they died. It's just, right. it's just, it's just crazy it making insulting just to our common sense too so are they trying to tell us that on september 10th somebody vandalized a bunch of equipment daredeviled and suicide themselves so they decided to lock it up no but you know never happen no i mean no no i mean there, there are there are, fo there are photos of uh one Did you gentleman... know when it was locked was it locked before the impact or was it locked after the impact uh, no well, they, the doors were locked on the morning of of the of the uh of the day of september right, but 11th. before the attack or after it started they would have been locked i, I don't i don't know exactly it would be what... preemptive if it was before yeah yeah probably before so that's a big question then because they had the wherewithal to lock it the day before a normal tuesday was about to happen yeah or... a normal a normal tuesday and and that's weird yeah i mean that's weird it's it's weird that bomb sniffing dogs were were reported removed. to have been removed six on september 6th uh and i you know i i i i, I read through the 500 are, are you sure those bomb sniffing dogs weren't trying to commit suicide <laughs> yeah i don't, don't know <laughs> for the I safety that to be removed maybe, maybe there are pet psychiatrists that can talk to those dogs but yeah sorry for the joke but like, this yeah. is getting crazy uh keep going yeah, yeah so i mean i i mean i i you know, I, I read through the 503 uh, first responder uh, transcripts of their oral testimonies that they gave to their uh, higher ups in the fire department of New York, sometimes with and sometimes not with FBI agents present. And of those 503 who testified, uh, I mean, during their testimony, um, Nobody said, so did you hear any bombs growing off or any grenade? I mean, nobody, nobody's asking that kind of question. But 118 of those first responders who went into those towers to rescue people uh, volunteered that during the course of their rescue operations, they witnessed, encountered, or were thrown across the lobby or, or across the 33rd uh, hallway of the 33rd floor 
um, secondary devices, bombs, and so on. And and the families wanted to know about well, what about this? What about all these reports? Which the uh, which doesn't I mean I deal with this late in my book because the 9/11 Commission didn't deal with it, and and then the New York Times publishes on the 12th of August 2005 these 503 uh, testimonies by first responders. Now these are not in the print edition; they're simply there online for you to go and look at. Now I didn't personally know any one of those 503 people. So it's like, well, where do I start? So I just started with, with the first person with the first letter A as a surname and, and went, went along. And it, it's hard to know because sometimes the, the transcript is eight pages, sometimes 42 pages, uh, sometimes you, longer. Sometimes you have 200 lines that are redacted. Sometimes you don't have any redactions. But it, it's, it, 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 if there was a, a, a real court, having an investigation into the collapse of the towers. And if you had 118 first responders of the fire department of New York who had gone in to rescue people on the day of September 11th, and they testified before the stand and all of them were saying the same thing, that there were bombs going off and so on, then you have to say, well, it looks like there were bombs or secondary devices going off. Now then you can go and you can go and say, well, well, how could this happen? Is this, mm -hmm. Is this, um, you know, are there uh, accomplices to the hijackers? Did Al-Qaeda somehow infiltrate security in the World Trade Center and get past the Port Authority and, and Did somehow they become plant... a tenant on certain floors? Yeah. Well, like a whole I mean, bunch I, of questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this to one of the people when I was writing the book, and they said, well, maybe, maybe there were people involved in Al-Qaeda who were masquerading as, as caterers and put, put grenades inside of large chocolate cakes. And I said, well... If that's a question you have, I guess they'd have to look at it. But, but in any event, or or are there are there people who uh, who are, I mean, you have to look at things like you know, in, back in in World War II, there were there was a name Quisling. I forget the person who kind of uh, betrayed Norway regarding the German uh, advance on Norway, and and so I mean, are there are there people in the U.S. government who are I mean, either sympathetic to the terrorists then or, or, or something else or, 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 you know, what, what is going on? And, and so, uh, and as, as Kevin Ryan said on the, on your show the other day, there's, there certainly are people that you would want a proper investigation would, would look into people who had uh, the ability to pull this off, which, which mm -hmm. includes some people in the U S government, like Ron Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. I mean, I mean, I think that we live in a world where 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 we should coots for the kind of exception. People should be innocent until proven guilty and 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 so on. But but there should be there should have been some tough questions that the commission asked. And the commission wrote their report uh, based largely on an outline that came out in March of 2003 before they did their investigation, where the, the chapter headings and the subheadings were prescriptive of what the report would find. And Bob McElvain, who lost his son, Bobby Jr. McElvain, in, in the, in going, he was just entering the North Tower, said, this is crazy to have an investigation where you've decided ahead of time what the story is going to be. Now, there's a lot of arguments and debating about Towers 1 and 2. Yeah. What happened there? Were they explosives? Yada, yada, yada. But seven doesn't come up enough. 
Now, I see that your your Twitter handle there, your X handle is um, Ray McGinnis 7. So that's an homage to Building 7, I guess. It, it could be. It could, it could be that I... Or the seven but dwarfs, I, but... Like, like lucky lucky number seven or, <laughs> or seventh heaven, but... Uh, but I, did I, they have questions for Building 7? They and did I have questions. They did. The have commission questions. report didn't really cover it. The commission uh, omitted that altogether, even though right at the World Trade Center you have a 47-story building that collapses in less than seven seconds all of a sudden. And, and that you have... Uh, 60 firefighters uh, told the, uh, the, the fire department of New York in their debriefing that they understood uh, that World Trade Center uh, was going to collapse hours before. Sometimes wow, you know, over, over 30 of the over 30 of them believed. Sorry, the, you're, you're, we're, we're losing you a little bit here. Okay. As soon as you yeah. start talking about seven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go try again. Okay. So you had so, uh, 60 uh, firefighters. Yeah, so 60 firefighters in their testimonies to the uh, debriefing uh, what happened for them on, on the day of September 11th, 60 of them tell the uh, fire department of New York that, that they were told um, be, that be, before, well before the, the, t the Tower 7 collapsed, the 47-story tower, that it was going to collapse. Mm -hmm. And some of them are being told two hours and more, five hours and more. I mean, and... and and how yeah, do you... it went down at like 6 p.m. Eastern time or something like that? It fell down at 5:20 p.m. Eastern time. 5:20, okay. I mean, you have you have the first report of the tower having fallen, uh, Tower Seven having fallen on a CN, CNN report by I think uh, Alan Dodd at at, at uh, 10:45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time earlier in the day, and then the BBC one is more famous, uh, you know, 20 minutes at least. Uh, with Jane Stanley, with the tower sitting behind her, saying, "This tower that you see in the background behind me, like yeah. it's like uh, it's fallen. It's like me saying that that cabinet behind you that you that you see right now be behind my head, it's also fallen. You know, so yeah, don't it, believe your lying eyes, right? Yeah, <laughs> don't believe your lying eyes. But there's something in which the the kind of the propaganda is that uh, if we tell you something over and over again. You won't be able to believe your ears or believe your eyes. We yeah. want to override your your own basic common sense and what your five senses tell you to tell you a different story. Now, did the families have questions around seven? Why was it not included in the report? Like, I'm sure they had yeah. the questions before the report, right? That's what we're focusing on. That we're not in it. Yeah, yeah. One so of sure yeah, they had plenty. Yeah, they had. They they wanted to know why why that that building fell. They wanted to know why. The leaseholder Larry Silverstein had said that it would be a good idea if the building was pulled, and so those are the questions they asked. And the 9/11 Commission ignored that question as well. I mean, they they ignored questions around uh, the families wanted to know why uh, uh, the, the president seemed to be using all the talking points of the project for a new American century that involved quite a few people. Uh, uh, that wanted to, to to talk about rebuilding America's defenses uh, and how that in their report that uh, that the the return to American military dominance would be a slow road unless something catastrophic happened like a new Pearl Harbor. And uh, Beverly Eckert, whose whose husband Sean Rooney died, said that she would have liked uh, the the commission to ask Dick Cheney and Dylan Rumsfeld and others who were in the cabinet, the Bush cabinet 
why they thought it would be a good thing for a new catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor, which is kind of like what happened on September 11th, to happen. Why would you want that to be a good thing or think it was, mm -hmm. would be a good thing? No answer. No, no, we're not going to touch that one either. Not but, even from him or somebody else at the same time? No, but that's a really nice plaid shirt you've got there, Jason. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in 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 tune with the uh, the, the kind of co complimentary way that the commissioners would be before their in interviewees, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You like my hat too. And I like I, your hat. Yeah, it's a nice yeah, hat. Yeah. 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 Oh, sorry, we're out of time now. There. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. And then, how about uh, uh, the Pentagon? Were there questions that they asked for around the Pentagon that were unanswered? The family's questions around the Pentagon. Now, I want to say, too, that the families uh, who are part of the family steering committee are largely New York focused. I mean, most of the people involved in that effort are people affected in New York City and, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, but, but all connected with, with the people who lost lives in the towers. They asked questions around why the FBI was not releasing the footage of different uh, video cameras from a nearby hotel and a gas station so they can have a better idea of, of what exactly struck the Pentagon. Uh, they didn't they didn't go into asking any, I mean, they're, you know, my my book is about what the families asked the 9-11 Commission. There are, as you may be aware, there are a wider catchment of questions that people in the 9-11 truth movement ask generally, such as, was it a plane that hit the building or was it a missile? The families did not ask any questions about a missile regarding the Pentagon. I mean, maybe they would today, I don't know. But in any event, what, you know, so I, I'm dealing with a narrower range of questions than is mm -hmm. out there uh, writ large. So, you know, so there, I mean, and also the families, the, the 12 people who were on the family steering committee, uh, the majority who've who've spoken to the press and answered the questions about how did you vote in the Bush versus Gore election in 2000, the majority of the family steering committee members said they voted for President Bush. Uh, Patty Casaza, uh, who lost her husband uh, John and had a she's a, a nursing student, said, you know, having voted for President Bush, she expected that he would be their greatest ally, but he turned out to be one of their greatest adversaries. So, so they I mean, their questions. Their questions were pointed, but but fair. They never they were never asking rhetorical questions. They were just asking the the questions that made sense based on their reading, you know, some thousands of, of news articles, you know, seeing things, information going in different directions, and trying to trying to make it make sense. Did they ask any questions around who was responsible for sending people back in? Who was the one that told the people to use those bullhorns and send everybody back? Did they ask questions like that? Yeah, they asked questions like that, and and they didn't get answers. So, you know, so, so to this day, we don't know who provided those instructions I, I, or orders. I, I, yeah, I think I think we do know now, and I I can't okay. remember the man, but but yeah, you <laughs> say like what 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 now, is going on? Did he on die there? in the building, or was he not? I I don't think so. Well, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Um, so it's, yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of questions that they have, um, but, but the way it, the way it shakes out with, with the families, those dozen people on the family steering committee specifically, 
Uh, you've got a number of people like Carrie Lemack, who is, you know, she made a documentary in 2010 called Killing in the Name, which won a, a, a nom an Academy Award nomination for a documentary short, which is all about Islamic terrorism. And, you know, she's, you know, made statements. She was, she ended up also being an intern with the Council on Foreign Relations. The Council on oh, wow. Foreign Council on Foreign Relations is a think tank that's long had a close relationship with, you know, with many administrations going back to the 1920s, which is often uh, telegraphing what the foreign policy objectives should be uh, right. of, of the United States government. So that's an interesting uh, direction for her to go in after she after the 9-11 commission is over. And there's a couple of other people like uh, Carol Ashley and Mary Fetchett, uh, Robin Weiner, who, you know, are, are involved uh in congressional committees uh, that uh, ask them questions that, that are pretty much on side the official account. And then you have the, the Jersey girls, Patty Casaza, Mindy Kleinberg, uh, Lori Van Auken, and Kristen Breitweiser, who uh, who've asked the tougher questions along with, I'd say Sally Reaganhard and Monica Gabrielle with the skyscraper safety campaign around how, how does the building collapse like that? Uh, you know, you got, so you got, Half, half of the people, maybe, well, Beverly Eckert also would be clearly not satisfied and want to have a new investigation. But I'd say at least four of the of a dozen would be sat, pretty satisfied with the official account and about seven or eight would, would say there's a cover-up or we want a new investigation or a lawsuit. So, I mean, they're all the same 12 people. I sometimes look at, look at, at the public statements some people have made uh, that are more on side with the official account. I think it's a bit of a miracle that some of those questions were even put to the commission, given, you know, I mean, given the 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 trust that uh, President Bush would never lie. I mean, at least they didn't have Deborah Burlingame, whose uh, whose brother is is uh, you know the pilot on the on Flight 77 going to the Pentagon. She thought there was no need to have any investigation at all. So, you know, so she's she's very much on side with Dick Cheney, who said that any investigation at all would only be a comfort to the terrorists and that we can't afford the money. The 9-11 Commission as well only got three million dollars to start. Contrast that where you got three thousand people almost who died on September 11th. And in the 1990s, uh, the U.S. government spent nearly 80 million dollars investigating Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and the Whitewater um, uh, scandals. So just the, 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 the crazy uh, priorities or lack of priorities. I mean, the Challenger space shuttle, as Mary Fetchett points out, who lost her, her son Brad, says within five days, once that happened, Ronald Reagan said we're going to have an investigation. And then they got uh, you know, a report about four or five months later. And in contrast with that, President Bush dragged his feet for 14 months and then, mm -hmm. and then appointed Dr. Henry Kissinger with a long history of, of you know, pension for secrecy, covering up all kinds of things, the coup in Chile and so on. He, was, he still he was asked, has string on his fingers, if you look at that man. <laughs> he was asked to be the, the chair of the 9-11 Commission. So then you have the family say, well, let's pay a visit to Dr. Kissinger. And he has them come into the, the family steering committee members, go into, into Dr. Kissinger's apartment uh, office in uh, early December of 2001, or 2002, I mean, and uh, he turns up, they've all got these winter coats on. He turns up the thermostat like to 86, 88. Uh, they're starting to strip off, you know, uh, jackets, sweaters. Uh, he's serving them coffee and, and uh, you know, 
cookies and stuff. And Lori Van Auken asks uh, Dr. Kissinger, uh, Dr. Kissinger, we just want to make sure that you don't have any conflicts of interest if you're going to head up this inquiry, that you don't have any, any business clients by the name of bin Laden. So at, at, that, at that moment, um, Dr. Kissinger practically falls off the sofa, spills coffee all over the, uh, the coffee table. The women go into, um, you know, mother mode and rush into the kitchen to get paper towels to clean up all the mess. And the next day, Dr. Henry Kissinger resigns from the 9-11 Commission. So did he have a connection? Well, he he didn't want to, very likely, he didn't want to reveal his client list. And so that's sort of where it was left. Uh, you want to ask me a question like that? I'm going to resign and I'm not going to show you my client list. So very likely, they were getting a little too close to something. And probably, I mean, Kristen Breitweiser says in her memoir, Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow, that, that she and a few others did some you know, a little bit of research on Henry Kissinger. So they probably had a good reason to suspect that that would be the case. Probably exactly right. Because <clears throat> yeah. he has his fingers everywhere for as, far, as long as I can remember, way back when uh, he's been around doing his thing, uh, Henry. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple questions here for you because, boy, that two hours went by quickly, didn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, CJ Cummins has asked, uh, has Ray ever spoken to that fake survivor? Tanita Head? Oh, Tania Head. No, I haven't. Tanya. I haven't spoken. I've read. I've read some stories in the news. Is that? I mean, it's crazy. Someone going around representing themselves as somebody who is a survivor who never was involved in 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 that in that event at all. You know, it, it's. And I think it's it's a reminder that when when I or anyone else is is writing about this story. I have to be careful and say, well, how do I know that that, that that source is trustworthy? I often have to go and look at, at other ways that the same story or the same angle of the story is being written about so that I can um, satisfy myself that, that somebody is worthwhile quoting. There, I mean, there's numbers of people who've, who've come forward over the years and said things that are uh, uh, alarming, uh, but, uh, but sometimes I would say, you know, I don't think I want to include that person in my book because I'm not sure that what they're saying is solid or they may be almost even like a kind of a decoy. Like maybe they have, I mean, you know, certain person is coming forward saying I'm like a, a CIA whistleblower, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're just making up a story, uh, which, which seems fantastic that, that they want people like me to, to, to pick up on it and write mm -hmm. about it. Uh, and then it'll blow up in my face and then I'll have cited it and then, uh, and then it, it, it undermines my credibility. So have to be really careful about making sure I'm touching on, uh, the most solid sources, uh, and, and the solid, um, solid informations, uh, you know, and, and also when I, when I wrote my book, knowing that the families on the family steering committee themselves were not united regarding whether they want a new inv investigation or whether they think the official account is 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 uh is legit i had to write uh you know a conclusion that leaves people to make up their own mind and say well here's what these people think and here's what those people think and you know they're they're in different places i mean there's a number of 
people that are, are you know, like, like Bob, I talked to Bob McElvain, 100% certain that the U.S. government was, was, in, was principally involved. And then people like the Jersey Girls, um, are, they're, they're primarily concerned about Saudi involvement and complicity. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to add this caveat. I think that, I mean, Patty Casaza talked in 2007 at a, a gathering at, at a university in, in West Hartford, Connecticut. And she talked about how uh, she still doesn't know, hasn't come to terms with, with who really was involved in the attacks or who really perpetrated the attacks. She thinks of the hijackers as patsies, right. like, like Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy. And I think that for the families who may have darker suspicions around around U.S. complicity, for for those who who also want to have an investigation with foreign nationals or foreign governments, they can't afford very much to say anything about what they wonder about the United States' role in the attacks, if there's a role, because if they do that, they're probably going to be taken to the cleaners by the press and then any lawsuit against the Saudis or or the United Arab Emirates or whatever is going to be, you know, just it'll just not have a chance. So it, it's a it's a kind of a, a dance they have to do regarding their private thoughts and then what they say to the press themselves. You've blown my mind. I'm digesting a bunch of things right now. It's pretty incredible. I have one last question for you and then I'll let you get back to your evening. So Ashley Taylor, 89. Hi, Ashley. Nice to see you again. Uh, does Jason know about the story of Pat Tillman? Great documentary about him, his family's fight for truth, and how the Bush and men behaved in the wake of 9-11. Uh, Ashley, I've never heard the story, but I'm going to pass it to uh, uh, Ray here. Do you know who this person is, Pat Tillman? Pat, Pat Tillman, I believe, was a, a football player in the NFL, I think. And I think that in response to the events of September 11th, he uh, joined uh, the U.S. forces. I believe he was in Afghanistan and not in Iraq. Not 100% certain, but he was one of those two theaters of war. And I think that he was starting to have some questions about why they were there, what was going on in mm. Afghanistan, and uh my memory is, if he's the, if he's the same person, that there was uh, an incident of quote friendly fire, and he died, you know, instantly oh, or or shortly after, right? Has yeah. passed away again. Yeah. So um, so then um, the, the Tillman family were not satisfied with uh, with the story of record around what had happened there. Uh, there's suggestions that he was actually murdered. Uh, and I haven't looked in. I, I didn't. I didn't look into that story when I was writing my book. I haven't. I'm drawing on what I remember from reading newspaper articles over 15 years ago. But right. uh, but it's it's it, it's another story where sometimes when people get close to to a, to some problems with an official narrative, things start to happen to people. And uh, Pat Tillman may be one of those unfortunate people. Well, we're running out of time, so I only have one. Well, I came up with one more question for you. Okay. It's a really important one. Uh, yeah, where did you get that shirt? Oh, this shirt? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, in a small <laughs> Any important a, questions at the a, end. Oh, a, sorry, we're a, out of time. A small, uh, a small, yeah. In line with the with the questions that a nine eleven commissioner might ask me as a witness. Right. Uh, this shirt comes from Thailand. Uh, I I have a a friend uh, who who has a uh, business called worldpilgrim.com, worldpilgrim.ca, and she takes people on on tours to uh, variously the Camino in Spain and uh, Guatemala. And she also has me as the guy that co-leads the tour once in a while to Thailand. And so we take people to a uh, a weaving studio, and I got that this studio in Chiang Mai, Thailand, maybe 20 years ago now. I lucked out that there's an actual story behind that shirt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. Incredible. And the cabinet is still behind you, by the way. I don't care what you. The cabinet me. has not disappeared. Eyes. Yeah, it hasn't hasn't imploded. Yeah. Nope, still there. <laughs> Look, Ray. Good. Thank you so much. This is a great way to finish the week of 9/11. We got some more information. I'm really disturbed about those locked doors. I'd like to yeah. find out if that was locked before the first incident or during. Uh, that's really peculiar. How'd you get that information? Like, how did who it's, survived? It's in, How'd you get that it's information? In, it's in my book. <laughs> it was, okay, good. There you go. So everybody, it's, it's, it's in my book. Out. You can you can yep. see the some of the 932 uh, endnotes that uh, that source all this stuff. It's uh, it's an awful lot of, of putting together a huge puzzle. It's like working with a huge Christmas puzzle piece with like ten thousand pieces. It's like, okay, what am I going to include? What not? Uh, you know, what makes sense to to discuss? And yeah, so. It's, it's a big story, but it's a really important story. And, uh, and the families, uh, uh, you know, their story is about grassroots activism. And right. just like the, just, it's, it's kind of a, a, a counterpart to the National Citizens Inquiry here. It's, it's yeah, and I'd like to see a, more of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think we need to support this one. We need to get the word out. Um, so go check out HateGate. Uh, you'll find it. It's really quick. There's a PDF, I think, 84 pages. You'll find that incredibly interesting. And I don't know if that'll make its way into your book still, because it's still POEC related. It was Jeremy's yeah. testimony. Yeah. So there might be another little chapter left for you there. Okay. But, but thank you so much, Ray. I would like to get you back in the future. There's other uh, topics I'd like to get into with you. Uh, writing, um, the stuff that you're working on your new book. Uh, I'd really like to get into that one uh, before or after you print, you, you tell me. Okay. Uh, but we'll find some more time for you, Ray. Great. Thanks so thank much for the time. Good to speak with you. Thanks again. You have yourself a great weekend. Okay. And oh, Bye-bye. one last question. Yeah. Uh, the family, are they doing anything now? The families? Yeah. Is uh, there another initiative going on or anything? Well, the people like Matt Campbell, whose brother Jeff died in the towers, uh, he's in the UK. Uh, they had an initiative to get a new inquest into how he died. And the judge in London just recently this summer said, no, we're not going to look into that again, even though I think that they know that uh, the Jeff Campbell is not in one piece and many pieces of him are missing. And oh uh, from, the, from the force of explosions, uh, whatever. Uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, the families, there's families proceeding with looking into questions around the towers. Uh, there's a Bobby McIlvain Act uh, before Congress, but... Uh, Few members of Congress want to touch reinvestigating 9 11 because they think it's a, it will ruin their careers. So. so it's time to just leave it alone for a bit, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ray. That was very enlightening. And my brain is hurting. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of information that went up there this week. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so I'll stay you. out of small planes for the next little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go just go for a walk with a friend. <laughs> yeah. And what are you watching on TV tonight? I I don't know. I might I might watch I might watch a, a, an old movie. My mother's ninety one. She's gonna come over, so she likes watching you know movies from the forties, fifties, sixties. You know back back then. The good old when, days. Yeah, the good old days, which uh, which I kind of long for sometimes. You know, I, I wish that all 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 that my biggest concern was was whether or not I've learned how to do the hustle or the bump or, or the twist or the mashed potatoes, but. Uh, that, those days seem to be gone. You said mashed potatoes. I got to go eat now. Thank you okay. very much. Okay. Okay. Take care, brother. Take care. Have a good Thank one. you. Bye bye. -bye.